It's time for some cheap talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Okay, so here we are. Welcome once again. So good to see you once again. And this is our fourth episode of Cheap Talk with Trick Chat, the name that's so confusing that we can hardly say it right. Today we're going to be talking about the lap of luxury and the controversial The Flame. I don't know if it's so much controversial. Would you guys say that's controversial? I guess it is among cheap trick fans in a way. I yeah. mean, you saw what happened on the Facebook page. <laughs> no, I was didn't discussed. notice it at all. Yeah, it just it just tends to bring out the fence. You know, you're either on this side or that side. You know, that's just the way it is. I guess we should go into a little bit of history about The Lap of Luxury. The Lap of Luxury is the 10th studio album by the American band Cheap Trick. It was released on April 12, 1988. It's the band's second most commercial successful studio album, going to number 16 on the Billboard 200 charts, trailing behind 1979's Dream Police, which went to number 6. It has been certified platinum in sales. The album was certified platinum in Canada for the 100,000 sales in September 1988, where the album peaked at number 11. So there are some cool things that came back with the Lap of Luxury. One of them being the cool cover. I guess we can start judging this book by its cover. Uh, what did you guys think of the cover of Lap of Luxury? I like the back cover more than the front cover. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not a great picture on the front cover, but it was, of course, it was great that they went back to the pretty boys on the front geeks on the back motif but maybe they could have picked a better picture of robin and tom to put on the front it kind of looks like they just were walking around the corner and snap i think it all might have been well no i guess it probably wasn't looks like it was from the like a video shoot doesn't the back cover yeah with uh rick and bunny it looks like it's from the video shoot doesn't it yeah i wonder if i wonder which was done first the chicken or the egg in that sense the uh, cover or the video or at the same time, who knows? Yeah. Matt, what did you think of the cover? I always thought it was funny that Tom appears to be wearing a big black straight jacket. You know, it's like it's like a heavy raincoat or something like that. And I agree, yeah, it's not a great photo of them. They don't they they look kind of just I don't know, tired. Yeah, I agree. Whereas like for example on uh Heaven Tonight, they look very uh calm and cool, you know what I'm saying? So Yeah. Right. I, I, I guess I can kind of see it. The logo, it's not really featured all that prominently, is it? On the back cover. On the back cover, yeah, but yeah. when you're looking for a Cheap Trick album, wouldn't you right. want Cheap Trick right in your face? Yeah, front cover, not so much. Isn't that kind of strange? I guess it's one big picture, isn't it? Yeah, basically. So it's kind of a wraparound cover, yeah. Actually, yeah. Yeah. It's like Robin Robin and Tom's heads just kind of are floating on the cover. It's like all black, and it's just kind of their heads just kind of floating there. Yeah. But it, it was great to see them go back to the old formula, if nothing else. So. Not a, not a, uh, not, something not as impressive as, let's say, uh, Dream Police. But then again, some of the, uh, it definitely, I think, is better than the Doctor cover. Can we say right. that? <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> Even though the album was considered a comeback album for Cheap Trick, it was actually another record created in the midst of much turmoil with their label at the time, Epic Records. 
Before its recording, original bassist Tom Peterson rejoined the group, and Epic had determined that it was going to help with some of the songwriting, which I'm sure the band loved, and of course we know they did not. The band acquiesced only to save their contract. The mainstream ballad, The Flame, became a number one hit single, and the album went platinum. However, the band still points to this album as the one that restricted their range and boxed them into a sound that would eventually stall their recording career for most of the 1990s. We're going to get into that when we actually discuss the track, The Flame. We're going to go track by track and kind of talk about what we like or don't like on this album. First track is Let Go. thoughts bj i love this song um it's probably my favorite song on the record i mean it's a pretty much a toss-up between this and never had a lot to lose for me but i like the song a lot i think it's great you know what's funny is and before we even get into specific songs it's you know we started when we did the first couple episodes of this we did in color we did the debut album and those were almost too easy because i love them whereas this album somehow finds its way always kind of more toward the bottom of the pile and it's not one that I necessarily grab like right away if I'm in a mood for some cheap trick. So a lot of these, to me, it's kind of uneven. Like this first one, I like it, but it, it kind of feels like maybe something like it, like a Cars song, like that keyboard thing that's going on. It, I don't know. It's it, I like it. It's probably one of the better songs on the album. This you know, um, obviously, let's go kicking off the album, but. But none, it doesn't really strike me as, like, I want something a little heavier, I think, for the first song on the album. Yeah. But well, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty heavy for this album. Heavy for this album, exactly. And I yeah. think that's maybe why, why I think this, this album doesn't necessarily grab me, is when this is the representative of the heaviest song, you kind of go like, it, it seems, the whole album, I think, in a lot of ways, is missing that teeth. The, the kind of bite that you expect from, like, early Cheap Trick. But to put it in context, this is coming after The Doctor, so... Right, right, <laughs> right. No, it's so, a, um, it definitely, I mean, that's the thing, at the history of Cheap Trick, but that's, like, when you're sitting there with your stack of CDs, even, like, the newer stuff, I think, is back around to sounding like original Cheap Trick, like Rockford or things like that, you know. Um, so, I don't know, I guess it's more of my take on the whole album, but even this as a lead-off song... You know, while I like it, I, I, I just it doesn't feel like really distinctive cheap trick to me. If you think about it in context of a cheap trick fan at the time and they the last album was the doctor, when they hear this song kick in, they might <laughs> right. actually be excited. Right, <laughs> that, yeah, it's true. Be, you know, glad it's not the doctor too at least. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I have to say as someone that did buy it as soon as it came out, I would have to say that it was like, Wow, they're they're on to something here. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, it was definitely a return to form on, on many levels. The weird thing is is that, for me, there's Cheap Trick that I'm incredibly fond of and other Cheap Trick that I'm not so fond of. And, you know, Matt, you were saying it kind of, like, fits in the middle of the pile. Right. That's the area I don't reach for very often. As weird as it's going to sound, even the stuff that I really don't care for like the doctor i keep trying that album out all the time right like every so often i'll just I, I, there's something i must be missing you know <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> and, and and like uh 
some stuff that I don't care for, whether it be on any album, I, I tend to gravitate towards it sometimes because it's it's at least strong in its intent, even if I don't care for it. Does that make any sense? Sure. Yeah. Think, what, what did I miss the first time? How did I not like this? Oh, wait, now I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now I remember why I didn't care for it right. as much. But So so this, this album kind of sits in the middle, but I don't think that it's a bad album. I just don't think that there's much, as we said earlier, teeth behind some of it. Um, right. The guy who the guy who co-wrote "Let Go," Todd Cerny, he yes. also co-wrote "Wrong Side of Love," and I looked up his credits, and he's he wrote mostly country stuff right. after this. So I don't know if that is indicative of anything, but he wasn't really a rock guy. It appears like he was also a song doctor. One somebody that yeah. they bring in to beef up things and everything. Which I don't know why they would think Rick Nielsen needs a song doctor, but <laughs> right. That's right. record company logic for you. Exactly. So it's a pretty solid track. It's, it's pretty good. I don't know. You just think of some things like, you know, Dream Police and some of the other openers that they've had on albums. And it's just kind of, while the intention's there, the drive's not, in my mind. I'm a big fan of the song. I think the melody's great. I love the chorus. I like it a lot. And the production values don't bother me on it. As a matter of fact, the producer on this album was Richie Zito. Yeah, he had done a funny thing about him. I was looking at all the stuff he's produced on All Music, and he did a ton of soundtracks, like 80s soundtracks. Heavenly Bodies, and you remember that movie, Just One of the Guys? Mm-hmm. I, I love that movie. He did that soundtrack, and uh, like the movie Teachers. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of 80s soundtracks. And like he produced a Berlin album in 84, mm-hmm. stuff like that. He hadn't really done a lot of... Anything like Cheap Trick, really. That's that's pretty interesting. Uh, and, and it's strange. Oh, and sorry, he also did, later he did the Caddyshack 2 soundtrack and the Say Anything soundtrack, that Cheap Trick on both of those. So mm. now we can see why they you know, why they were on there, the right. Richie Zito connection, I guess. Definitely makes sense. And it's weird that you mentioned soundtracks, because for a while there, the band was doing so many soundtracks and things it was almost like that became their way of getting through you know in the media and stuff like that yeah right it was yeah that was kind of one of the ways they were trying to get attention or just revitalize the band i guess yeah and it it was also kind of i would imagine kind of easy to do that in a sense because they they didn't have to like do a whole album they could just go in knock one thing out and be done with it and be part of a movie and all that stuff and, and I think everybody was kind of chasing that at the time well let's let's move on to the next track No Mercy, here's a little taste of that Matt, what do you think of No Mercy? You know, speaking of soundtracks, to me this sounds like it should be one of those 1980s training sequence, you know, bad karate kid kind of movie song. You know, he's going to accept no defeat. and It has kind of a Miami Vice kind of drum thing going on. It's like, I don't know. Again, it's not one that just grabs me if I'm, if I'm going to really put something on. I'm not a huge fan of the song. No, I don't really like this song at all. It's not a cheap trick song, and 
it, the band just seems superfluous. It's like the band's just sort of there, but it's not really it's not really a rock band song. It's right. It's just a studio trickery, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like how you mentioned that it's suitable for a montage. So when I work out later, I'm I'm playing this. <laughs> Exactly. When I'm you're when put, you're doing those reps and then getting into that, you know, karate kid position for your final kick, imagine this song. <laughs> I'm also gonna put my flash dance sweatshirt which is torn <laughs> on the one side that has the turquoise and pink and white motif, so I'm basically gonna look like a Duran Duran album cover, so post pictures. <laughs> yeah. Time to work out to some cheap tricks. And also the guy who co-wrote this song, mm -hmm. John Lind. Yes. Uh, he wrote "Crazy for You," the Madonna song. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And Jim Scott, what did he do? I couldn't find anything about him. That's one of those names when you Google it. <laughs> good luck finding that actual Jim Scott you're looking for. You know? Yeah. Wow. I see that. Wow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just basically brought to the band again. It almost sounds like a soundtrack song like this could have been in rocky 19 right exactly yeah some, some real knockoff like karate kid sister or something like that yeah. and no one from the band had anything to do with writing the song and it doesn't sound like they had much to do with recording it either <laughs> right right like if rob lowe was going to do an action film <laughs> right. <laughs> Death Club starring Rob Lowe, featuring the track No Mercy from Cheap Trick. So there you go. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is definitely one of the better songs in the album in a way though. Uh, uh no. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, not I would at all. say it's one I would say it's one of the worst. Really? In my opinion. See to me it seems like we've got three strong tracks right at the beginning of the album. You guys disagree with um, that? Yeah, I disagree. I, yeah, I disagree. <laughs> See, that's, I, I'm, I'm on the side of the fence. I like The Flame. I mean, I, I know a lot of people are turned off to it. I think probably because it did kind of make Cheap Trick commercial. And when they're your band, you don't necessarily want some kind of outsider digging the song. But And I didn't know Nature's Way when I heard this song. I mean, that wasn't on my radar at all, so I had no idea what that was. You didn't know where it was coming from. Um and you know what? I I like the flame. I mean, I'll go. To, I I kind of I won't turn it off when it comes on the radio. I think the real hardcore cheap trick fans see this as too commercial. Why did they go commercial? Why? You know what I mean? And that's. But I don't know. I don't. I don't know really why. Some people clearly, based on the comments that were posted, just absolutely hate it. And uh, I really I don't think it's the worst song on the album, and certainly not one of the worst cheap trick songs. I think it's an awesome song. And I'll, and I'll tell you why I like it so much. More music on the radio by a band you like is a good thing, as far as I'm concerned. I remember that the tour had a lot more people showing up that year. To be honest, it was coming out of every car. I mean, it was one of those songs that just was coming. You'd go to the beach and you'd hear the song. You know what I mean? It was great. And even as I went through my life, whether I'm working in a bar or whatever, at some point, I danced with a couple girls to this song and it was really nice <laughs> and it almost seemed like even though i was not uh 18 or 17 at my prom it was almost like a prom like every every time i hear this song it's like going to the prom do you know what i'm saying 
You know, and and it, that's exactly it. I think that to me, 1988. You know, we're talking about a pretty fun time in my life. Yeah. So a lot of the time, I do associate it with that time. Mm-hmm. There was a a really good um, concert at the time. It was I was where I was working. I was in college, and it was called National College Television. And they played a show. I think it's from Orlando, but they do the song, and Rick starts off. Well, this song features Robin, and you go. I think every song features Robin. Yeah, pretty like much. Yeah, uh, you know, and and then the he played a little bit longer of a guitar solo, a couple more notes, kind of ringing it out. And I love that version of the song, but it definitely, it, it like you said, in a way, it takes you to a certain time. The song was everywhere. The video was on MTV all the time. And even that, the fact that MTV was still playing videos, it, it, if you set it in that context, you know, it does. It, it's a very specific time for the song, and, and I think it takes me right there. Do you guys remember seeing them uh, on the MTV Spring Break concert? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Had this song not have happened, I'm not sure we would have seen that. Well, no, definitely not. Right. It yeah, it's true that the song revitalized their career, maybe saved their career, but um and I don't hate the song, but I don't love it either. So I guess I I'm the person that's on the fence. <laughs> I mean, to me, over the previous few albums, Rick Nielsen had written so many ballads that are so much better than this song. And it's just kind of pathetic that, you know, a song like If You Want My Love or Tonight It's You, which were both had videos that MTV could have played, those were ignored, or and then this is the hit. Well, now hold on a second. See, I think that those videos were played pretty heavily on MTV, but they didn't hit with the public like this did. Right. Yeah, and so, you know, uh, Cheap Trick fans blame Cheap, you know, the ones that don't like the flame, they blame the band for doing this song at all, it seems, but... Yeah, is it the band's fault that they wrote and put out great ballads and the public ignored them? And then they put out, you know, the Hitmaker record company ballad and then the public loves it. And that's not the band's fault. They, you know, they put out the ballads that could have been hits. Right, right. I mean, look at Y-O-Y-O-Y on Next Position Please is a beautiful song. Absolutely. And I, I don't think that was even a single, but, you know, Rick Nielsen definitely wrote great ballads on those albums, even off the doctor, take me to the top is a great song. That is so, a great song. I mean, is it Rick's fault that the ballads he wrote were ignored? So then they didn't really, they, you know, if one of those songs had been a hit, like if tonight it do had been a big hit, the record company never would have pressured them to do this song. So, well, you mentioned something there. Uh, there's a seed in what you were talking about. Yeah. Rick had written a lot of songs, uh, a lot of ballads and a, a lot of songs that, that had great hooks, but Rick also had this edge to him where he would slip in something kind of subversive or dangerous or you didn't know what was going on. For example, in Tonight It's You, there's a lot of things like don't stop dreaming with your eyes and it's you're just sitting there going, it makes no sense whatsoever, <laughs> but you know, it does in its own weird way. But there's always a sense of menace to 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 what I feel is the best cheap trick in my mind. You guys but you know, you know what's funny that? is that first of all, the playlist that you just mentioned. Go through all, BJ. All those songs that you just listed would make a great playlist. So anybody who doesn't know the songs, if you're listening to this podcast, obviously you know the songs. But I think in a way, when you follow a band all along, 
do you notice necessarily like when the like when they say the public kind of starts to follow it again? To me, I like I had all those albums leading up to this. Mm-hmm. It just it's just the new Cheap Trick album. Like you know, it's, I don't really I don't really pay attention to like whether or not suddenly everybody likes it. So to me, the idea that you know, like like you said, I remember seeing Tonight It's You on MTV all the time because yeah. I watched. It was usually on around when they would do you know headbangers ball and cheap tricks somehow got lumped into a lot of that stuff as well but it's like the kind of thing where like for me it's not like i said oh wow cheap trick is back it's because cheap trick had never left you know i had all those albums and and it just it was the new cheap trick album so i think in a way i didn't feel that that necessarily like oh wow cheap tricks the hot new thing it was just cool that other people seemed to maybe be digging it, but, you know, and even that, like a comeback album, you know, it never felt like a comeback because they had never really gone away. But what was very cool and what was a comeback was Tom coming back to the album. Right. And even back then, I mean, I didn't, I guess I didn't really follow the politics of it. I mean, obviously you didn't have the internet. You didn't know everybody, why they were fighting or why, you know what I mean? Like, I just didn't know it. You had the new album, had somebody different and, you know, I didn't really know why Tom wasn't in the band or, you know, now if anybody sneezes the wrong way, it, it becomes a, you know, a, a big thing on the internet. But at the time right. it was just, oh, here's the new album. I like the songs. You know, I, I didn't follow necessarily, you know, I didn't know why he left the band or why he came back. Very true. Very true. Again, this album seems like it's a collection of singles, not so much an album. Like where the Dream Police album, you kind there's a, a theme going through the whole thing and it does sound like there's a couple different uh even though it seems like it's all produced by the same guy it seems like some of the instrument instrumentation sometimes shifts and it makes you think like well what album's this on you see where i'm coming from it almost feels like it was a robin zander solo album because he's singing the lead he's singing all the background vocals there's only a couple songs like like that and we're going to get to them obviously that do that kind of trademark kind of trading back and forth of the riffs you know it's i don't know to me that's the thing i think a lot of it i listen to it and i don't necessarily always hear that whole band vibe that you get on on the earlier albums yeah it's that that distinctive cheap trick personality that right. is mostly missing probably the the one spot it really comes out has never had a lot to lose which we're gonna right. get to yeah but as far as the flame being a controversial song, I think that the band kind of put that out there to its fans in a sense. It was it was really weird because when you have an, a song that becomes a number one hit single, you shouldn't be like saying, "Well, we didn't want to record it. We didn't want to record it." <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because to me, Robin's performance on that is just so damn amazing that I don't care that outside writers were on it. It's it's like it really showed him for all he is worth. You know what I'm saying? He is just amazing on that track. Of course, Robin Zander would be amazing on anything, but I don't really hear it, a lot of heart or passion in that song. It's it really is just kind of a business transaction. <laughs> it almost feels like to me. See, when I'm dancing with my wife around the living room and to this <laughs> song. It's not a business transaction. It's a very beautiful <laughs> song. But the weird thing is that thematically, the song is not a love song in the sense that it's more a breakup song. 
Remember how, like, every breath you take, when that came out, everybody's like, I want this played at my wedding, and it's like, it sounds like a serial killer is writing that <laughs> song. Uh, the guy's gonna follow you and stalk you, and every breath you take, and even though it's over, he's not gonna let you rest, you know what I mean? He's right behind you. Uh, this song is not a love song in the sense like, oh, we're gonna make everything so wonderful. It's actually a breakup song. In that in that same sense, it's it's definitely a breakup song. the The relationship is over. Whatever's happened has happened, and he's saying, if you ever want another shot, I'll still be there for you, no matter what. Yeah, but it's just like a series of cliches. It's not a. It's not a. There's zero. There's very little creativity in the song. It's definitely a um, formulaic song with a certain goal in mind, which was to be played on the radio and become a wedding song. You know. Right. Well, I, I would have to say it definitely was successful. Yeah, it was. And, you know, we probably, Cheap Trick fans owe a lot more to the flame than they probably realize, I think. I agree. Because it might have saved their career, period. Well, I didn't understand. I mean, it says in this little bit on Wikipedia, it says, however, the band still points this album as the one that restricted their range and boxed them into a sound that would eventually start, stall their recording career for most of the 1990s. I disagree with that. There was no reason for them to have to keep doing the same thing over and over again. I think once you have the ability to have a number one song, you you kind of should be able to get your nuts back a little bit and do whatever you want. And I don't think that Woke Up With A Monster has anything to do with The Flame, which I think was a killer song, great riff. And, you know, I, I to me it doesn't seem like it altered their career in that sense no i don't agree with that quote i don't believe they were boxed into anything you know they chose to make busted they chose to work with richie zito again and make Mm -hmm. lap of luxury 2 i don't know if they were for i don't see how they were forced to do that you know right but they did wind up losing their contract with epic at that point and had to go to to warner so we have a fan here I'm going to insert a uh, fan sent an MP3 thing about the flame. And here is his view. Hey guys, this is Ghosty TMRS from the Facebook page, and uh, I just wanted to offer my thoughts on this polarizing song, The Flame, by our favorite group, Cheap Trick. You know, when this song came out in 1988, I wouldn't have been caught dead listening to a track like this. Power ballads were all the rage. I know the girls in school were really into them, and that almost made them uncool by default. All of those songs, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, When the Children Cry, I I, I had no use for that. I was heavily into alternative music and punk, and songs like that just weren't cool. But then I had my first serious girlfriend. So when a song like The Flame came on the radio, suddenly I was identifying with all of these songs that I previously had no interest in. I would hear The Flame and go, yes, this is exactly how I feel. Eureka, someone has put to music exactly what I'm going through. And, and songs like Can't Fight This Feeling by Ario Speedwagon, that's a few years earlier. I hated that song. Now suddenly this song was like my life story. I was like, yes, this is it. I would crash through doors. I'd row the ship to shore or whatever the heck he's singing about. I know exactly what he's going through here. And then, like all first serious relationships, it ends badly. 
And that's when you really need the flame. Then it's, yeah, crank the flame up. I know exactly where, yeah, you might be going, but I'm still here carrying the torch. I know this song is, it's everything. Now, as the years go by, I'm still into Cheap Trick. I mean, I was into Cheap Trick before the flame came out, but I sort of forgot about the song. It just wasn't on my radar until I bought the Authorized Greatest Hits CD. And then I was listening to the live version on that and thinking, wow, man, Robin's really killing it on this. This is awesome. But again, not one of my favorites and not one that I would really listen to. But, you know, as the years go by, I've learned that it's not always the songs that you love, that you carry with you through your whole life. It's not those songs that really bring back nostalgia. It's those other songs, those ubiquitous songs that were all over the radio, the ones that you don't have in your collection, the ones you're not listening to all the time. Take, for example, Surrender. I mean, that song came out. I was a kid when that song came out. I've always listened to it. I've always loved it. It's in my top five favorite songs of all time, but I don't get nostalgic when I listen to it because it's always current. It's always contemporary for me. So if it's late one night and I'm in a bar and someone's got the essential cheap trick set on the jukebox and they hit the flame and I hear that song coming over the loudspeakers, I'm instantly taken back to that moment, to that time in 1988. I'm hoisting my beer up and going, damn right, that, that, yeah, that, my youth. Yes, listen, youngsters, this is what it was like back then. Yeah, absolutely. So good for you, Cheap Trick. You've got a wealth of material to draw from when you do your live shows, but I'm glad you include that song because it does mean something to uh, some people in the audience. So that's it, guys. Looking forward to hearing the show, and I'll always be the flit. No, I'm not even going to attempt it. Well, whether you love the flame, hate the flame, or like the flame, it's it was still a, a good attention getter for the band, so... Yeah, so Robin, uh, I know you have uh, your Gibson acoustic now. Yes, I do. Actually, this is... I want that. This so, is a guitar of Rick's. Could, that we, I could we hear something? Have, uh, confiscated. He stole it from me. Yeah, yeah, I stole, no, it, stole it. I don't think so. Stole my guitar. I don't but this think is a, so. It's a beautiful. Yes, star this is, is an Everly Brothers model. Mm-hmm. It's an Everly Brothers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very pretty guitar. So. Well, yeah. Could we hear something? Uh, well, yeah. What do you want to hear? Uh, and I think it's okay. Okay. Yeah. How about something that maybe someone would recognize here? Oh, in, Batman. Uh, Nature's way. That's it. Wherever I go, I'll be with me. Another night slowly closes in. And I feel so lonely. Touching me, freezing out my skin. I pretend you still
Now, I usually get paid for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. 500 yen. 500 yen. Now it's a cheapskate. That won't even That was a 10,000 yen. All right. Thank you, Bunny. In front of TV, there's a lot of bunch of kids. We're really exciting now. Mm-hmm. I promise. I so, yeah. yeah, it's great. Uh, okay, great uh, experiment. Hey, well, this yeah. is this is actually the best interview we've ever done. Mm. Usually we work with dummies, but oh, tonight we're very smart. We work with skilled interviewers. Cheers. Very <laughs> honored. Yes. Okay. Can you finish off with a message for your Japanese fans? Uh, each of you. We, I love Japan. It's great to be back again. Thank you very much. Domo arigato. From Rick from Cheap Trick. Yeah. And from Bonnie. Mm-hmm. And from me. And from Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Oh. Yep. Okay. Kompai. 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 Thank you very much. Thank Kompai. you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Arigato. Arigato. Yep. Thank See you, you soon, arigato. too. Let's move on to track four, Space, written by Mike Chapman, the great Mike Chapman, and Holly Knight, and you KISS fans, uh, out there know Miss Knight's work. So what do you guys think of space? I don't like it. And I think uh, obviously Mike Chapman and Holly Knight were capable of much better things than this, than this song. Mm-hmm. Well, what don't you like about it? Anything. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like they wrote this with a rhyming dictionary. It just kind of goes through, you know, it's just these different rhyming words. And I don't know, this, I, I agree. I, I just, I'm not a fan of this song really at all. Yeah, this is where the album kind of loses me. And this is really one of those recycled, you know, publishing demo songs that was just shopped around to everybody. Of course, it was, it was released in 85 by Charlie Sexton. It's just one of those songs that, you know, Mike Chapman, Holly Knight, just a toss-off song that they just thought maybe they could make a few bucks with it. That's how it feels to me. I don't know how it wound up on this album or why they would choose this song to do. Hmm. So basically this uh, kind of leaves us as cold as space. (laughs) None of us really have a a great uh, love for this track. No. And I'm a big fan of a lot of Mike Chapman and Holly Knight's work, but not this one. So Space just kind of was taking up space on the album to me, and we'll look at uh, Side One's Closer, which is written by Robin Zander and Mr. Tom Peterson. The song Never Had a Lot to Lose.
I feel one of the better tracks on the album. BJ? It's a classic Cheap Trick song. Uh, probably the best song. I mean, like you know, I like I said earlier, I like Let Go a lot, but this is probably the best song on the album. It's and it's a classic. It's great. And when you say classic, you mean it's more like old Cheap Trick. Yeah. So Matt, what do you think of Never Had a Lot to Lose? Oh, oh, I love it. You know, it's <laughs> definitely a very catchy song. Uh, agreed. I think it takes half the album to get here, but it sounds like old school Cheap Trick, and it really it's uh, it's yeah. I think it's one of the standout tracks on the album. If I had one complaint about it, it would be that the instrumentation, I would like it to be a little more guitar-oriented, if that makes any sense. Well, the whole album, the whole album, I think, is missing. You don't get a lot of lead guitars. There's not a lot of solos. I I mean, I think this whole album is missing some of the guitar, but that's... uh, Yeah, definitely. And when you're missing Rick Nielsen's guitar, you got a problem. It's yeah, it's yeah. Half, it's really it's such a strong part that it and it just doesn't feel. I, again, it goes back to the quote about missing the teeth of the album, and I think we start to realize that it is Rick's guitar playing in a lot of ways. And I just I do find that it's kind of that it, I don't know whether it's they were trying to go that way if it's the mix or who knows. There's, maybe there's a mix out there somewhere with a lot more guitar in it. I don't know. Oh, one could only hope, but that would we be could possible. hope, right? And do you guys remember the video for this song yes, where yes. Rick punt, he punches his fist through his <laughs> right. guitar to play the solo? <laughs> I love that. See, you yeah. love it, but I hated it. I don't know why. That it just it's like oh, that's when he funny. punched the guitar, you hated it. Yeah, I thought it was corny. I mean, I know, I know that it's like, hey, it's Rick. He's doing something goofy, but it was like, oh. Brother. And then he's like spinning it around on his, <laughs> and then he acts like it's too heavy to carry, and you know it's, it's all those weird Rick things that we've come to. I, know don't, I spend half of a cheap trick concert laughing at Rick at the stuff he does and the <laughs> looks and the shit he says. Yeah, he's hilarious. Well, did you ever notice he's got that one guitar stance like he crosses one leg over the other? Yeah, and it's like, look, Rick's doing the I have to pee. Because <laughs> it's kind of like that, you know. Nice. But uh, so this is uh, Tom's writing return on this album. So BJ, why don't you give us a little history lesson on where Tom was, why he left, and why he came back? Hello, BJ here, reluctant host of the Rock and or Roll podcast. So the question today is, why did Tom Peterson leave Cheap Trick in 1980? Well, believe it or not, it appears as if Tom Peterson was not technically the original bass player in Cheap Trick. The way this story goes, the band Sick Man of Europe dissolved in early 1973. That band consisted of Rick Nielsen, Tom Peterson, Bunny Carlos, and a singer named Stooky, who was previously in the band Naz with Todd Rundgren. Apparently, at this point, Tom Peterson moved to Philadelphia and then on to Europe, ending up in Germany. In 2007, Mike Hayes, author of the Cheap Trick book, Reputation is a Fragile Thing, posted a revision to Chapter 4 on the Cheap Trick message board, where he quotes a guy named Stu Erickson, who was the bass player with Rick Nielsen, Bunny Carlos, and new singer Randy Hogan, who they called Zeno. This was between Sick Man of Europe and Cheap Trick. And Mike Hayes quotes Stu Erickson as saying, Tom was in Germany, in love at the time. This is early 1973. Stu Erickson's tenure with the group is short-lived. 
it appears as if he might not even have played any gigs with the band. He was replaced by a guy named Rick Jaluga, and the band did play a lot of gigs in 1973 around Illinois and Wisconsin with Rick Jaluga on bass. And it appears as if it was during this time that the name Cheap Trick came into use by the group. Then Tom Peterson returns to the fold in November of 1973. But like I said, it would appear as if they were already called Cheap Trick by that point. And the moment when the transition happened between Sick Man of Europe and Cheap Trick, Tom Peterson was not a part of the group at that precise moment. And that would be because, according to Stu Erickson, Tom was in Germany in love at the time. So one would assume that it was at this point in 1973 when Tom Peterson was AWOL for a short while, that was when he met his future wife, Dagmar. Flash forward to 1979, and the Dream Police period is winding down. The band is gearing up for their next album, All Shook Up. And a quote from the book, from Mike Hayes' book, Reputation is a Fragile Thing, During this time, Tom Peterson started to feel frustrated by the limited creative contribution he was able to make within the confines of Cheap Trick. Encouraged by his wife, Dagmar, he planned to do a solo project when the band finished recording. This is the end of 1979, beginning of 1980. The band goes into pre-production for All Shook Up, and a quote from the book, Bunny Carlos says, It was the three of us and our roadie playing bass because Tom couldn't make it. The recording of All Shook Up began in February of 1980 on an island in the Caribbean called Montserrat at a studio called Air Studios with legendary Beatles producer George Martin. And if you think about it, Dream Police was written and recorded before At Budokan became a huge hit. So All Shook Up is actually the first record that the band was making as a superstar group, as a successful band. So it's a different mindset, a different vibe. They're working with George Martin A quote from the book, Sessions had been fraught with tension, Peterson's growing disenchantment with the band plainly evident. The band recorded for about a month at Air Studios in the Caribbean, and then they moved on to England to finish the record, but Tom did not travel to England with the rest of the band, and apparently, I guess he completed his contributions to All Shook Up during that month in the Caribbean. A quote from George Martin from Mike Hayes' book, Reputation is a Fragile Thing, When we were recording in Montserrat last February, all the ladies came out except Tom's wife, Dagmar. She'd remained in California. Tom was spending most of his time in Montserrat on the phone. The All Shook Up International Tour began in mid-1980 while the album was still being mixed. Tom played with the group on dates throughout the U.S., but then left the tour blaming a viral infection. So this is the moment Pete Kamita enters the fold for the Canadian leg of the All Shook Up tour, and then on to Japan. And Tom Peterson is still a member of the band at this time. Pete Kamita is just a temporary replacement. And Pete Kamita was a guitar player, frontman, songwriter in his previous groups. So it must have been quite a transition for him to just become the bass player in a band without much of a creative contribution. Of course, that's the same dilemma that Tom Peterson was wrestling with, apparently. So Pete Kamita is a temporary replacement at first, This might shed some light on why his tenure in the band was so short-lived. He was a guitar player frontman, and he was temporary at first. But then, September 2, 1980, Epic Records releases a press release. Quote, By mutual agreement, the members of Epic Superstar's Cheap Trick have announced that bassist Tom Peterson will no longer be a working member of the band. A quote from Rick at the time, I think he needed a change. I think he was drifting away. Another quote from Rick Nielsen, There were certain differences of opinion, particularly concerning the fact that we were touring so much. 
I think he wants to be more of a front man and do his own thing. And a quote from Tom from Chozer Press at the time, There's no hard feelings. I feel good. They feel good. So at this point, Tom Peterson is working on a solo album, which was going to be called Emotional Oceans. And that record was originally going to be released under the CBS umbrella, the parent company to Epic Records. But apparently the label passed on the album. What might Emotional Oceans have sounded like? Well, when Tom Peterson left Cheap Trick, a song that he wrote and sang called Machines Make Money that was to appear on the All Shook Up album was cut from the album. Either the band didn't want it on there anymore, or Bunny seems to say in the book that Tom took the song with him so he could put it on his own album. So this is my opinion and only mine, but that is not a good song, and I do not miss it on the All Shook Up album at all. And if that's indicative of what his record was going to be like, I'm not surprised that CBS passed on the album. That's just my opinion. Tom Peterson did finally release some solo material in the summer of 1984 on Enigma Records. A five-song EP came out, a self-titled album, Tom Peterson and Another Language. Another language consisted of a drummer named Tom Mooney, who was a founding member of NAS with Stuckey and Todd Rundgren, and a guitar player named Jeffrey Rawlings, who had played with Phil Seymour, who was in the Dwight Twilley band and released an amazing solo album in 1980, Great Power Pop album. I believe Jeffrey Rawlings played on the second Phil Seymour solo album. And then Tom Peterson on Another Language also features a vocalist named Dagmar, Tom Peterson's wife at the time. So, Tom Peterson, another language EP, five songs, lots of keyboards, not great production on the record. Most of the vocals are performed by Dagmar. It's not a terrible EP. Um, I like the songs. It's, you know, it's no cheap trick, but it's not bad. 
So the Tom Peterson and Another Language EP came out in 1984. In the April 1985 issue of Playboy magazine, Dagmar Peterson is featured. And then at some point, not long after that, apparently the band and the marriage dissolved. Tom Peterson auditioned for Mick Jagger's solo band and somehow did not get the gig. At some point after that, Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson run into each other at John Taylor from Duran Duran's birthday party at a club in New York City. This is apparently the first time the two have seen each other for several years. And then, St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1987, Bunny Carlos Experience gig. The band is joined on stage by Rick Nielsen, Robin Zander, and Tom Peterson, and they perform California Man together. So this is the first time that the four members of Cheap Trick have appeared on stage together in about seven years. At this point, the seed is planted and John Brandt's days in Cheap Trick are numbered. Cheap Trick are coming off of their worst-received and worst-selling album in history, The Doctor, and their record deal was up with The Doctor, so they're negotiating a new record contract. They're considering going to a different label. Really, their career's not going well at this point, and obviously getting Tom Peterson back in the band would have been a shot in the arm, a lot of publicity... They didn't really have the upper hand with the record company in terms of negotiations. And this would also explain why the record company had so much input into the making of Lap of Luxury because Cheap Trick didn't really have a lot of leverage there. And now they have Tom Peterson back in the band. It's kind of a make-it-or-break-it moment. They They definitely needed Lap of Luxury to be a successful record. And I, for one, sympathize with what they must have been going through in dealing with the record label and trying to make that album happen and make sure that it was a success. So there you have it. Tom Peterson was out of the band for about seven years, almost eight years, I suppose, depending on when he officially rejoined. But that moment, the St. Patrick's Day 1987, was really the impetus of the return of Tom Peterson to Cheap Trick. Welcome back. You talk too much. You talk too much. You talk too much. You talk too much. Wow, that that was a really cool segment and very informative and very interesting to hear. And when, of course, we say that Dagmar was similar to Yoko Ono, it's only that a chick helped break up the band. We're not we're not dissing her or running her down. It's just so any hate mail you have, save it. We love everyone <laughs> and life is good. So. <laughs> Let's flip that album over. Matt, could you do me a favor and grab the album and flip it over, please? Everyone get ready. Hold on. Whoa. Ah, side two. It's good to roll over every so often. It helps help to keep your tan even. We're going to go to another single. This one, uh, some, some, some person uh, named Elvis Presley had a hit with this song at some point that's right baby yeah baby thank you very much yeah. but uh yeah when i was uh looking up the people who co-wrote these songs it was really depressing to see elvis's name attached to this song why because he had nothing to do with writing the song that was him and the colonel forcing these songwriters to put their names on it so they could make some of the money well yeah but that was uh standard stock and trade so yeah but it's depressing yeah, but think about how many. It's depressing people... that what's the name Otis Blackwell had to give up some of his uh, cut to Elvis 
for the publishing, you know? Yeah, but take a look at it like this way. He's got a song that made a bit, might have been a minor hit for a minor artist. Because Elvis recorded it, that guy probably was able to have a really nice life and not have to work again. See where I'm coming from? That doesn't justify Elvis attaching his name as a co-writer, in my opinion. Right, but I, I would still rather have well, half which a million Elvis dollars. Didn't do the Colonel. Right, that, right, but. but but I would rather have a half a million dollars than nothing. So that's kind of <laughs> where I'm coming. From. Yeah, but there's right and there's wrong. <laughs> I, I dig you. I dig you. But the song is called "Don't Be Cruel." Don't be cruel to guys think of this version matt you go you know what it is what it is um you know i really i guess in a way i don't really i wish they would have just put another original cheap trick song on the album you know they've done a bunch of covers obviously over the years it's it's okay it is what it is i mean it's not one of my favorite tracks just because i think in a way it is them doing he's kind of doing the elvis voice at some point and it's like i don't know it's all right I, you know and obviously the video is kind of fun but uh, but not my favorite song on the album. BJ? It's not horrible or anything, but I would never listen to it by choice. <laughs> I would never say, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to listen to Cheap Trick to Don't Be Cruel now and then put it on, you know? Right, right. Um, I don't. It was kind of pointless. I, I mean, you know, they did a good job. You know, like we said before, Robin Zander can sing anything and sound great. I don't care about it at all. Well, you know, I think it was definitely worth it just to see Bunny Carlos in an Elvis suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I love the bass on this track. Fantastic bass. Uh, just love that nice sound that Tom always gets. Again, there's a sterile sterileness to it, if that's a word. Uh, it just sounds sterile. It, it's a lot to do with the production, I would imagine, more than anything. The, again, the video bothered me in that they did that part where they just stopped. Right. And, and to me, when you're trying to push a single you don't do that kind of thing because to me it takes away from the person who might want to buy that single they go well do they stop on the record you know and are they, is this indicative of the the 45 that you'd be buying so remember 45s those were the there days. you go those were the days now we have mp3 downloads it's just not as cool no yeah i i think it was a pretty good track it's another song for the greatest hits collections uh it was a pretty good way to kick off side two, in my opinion. I'd like to know how it ended up on the record, like whose idea it was to cover it. And uh, well, Rick is a big sort of Elvis thing. fan. I think that Rick's early influences. Well, I'm sure Elvis. they're all Elvis fans. Yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know why they would choose this song at this point. And they eventually did what is a bad little girl for all the king's men. Remember that. was Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana and that track was on All the King's Men a tribute album so they're definitely Elvis fans but overall I'd, I'd have to say to me it's a positive addition to the album it's, it, was a, it was a good follow up to The Flame probably one of the better ones that they could have had along with Never Had a Lot to Lose I think that best choices for singles were probably picked don't you guys think? which, which three songs would you have picked that weren't singles off this album? 
You know what? See, I'm looking at even back in the day when it was side A, side B. I think side B is much stronger. Like, we're really getting into the songs that I like the most now. You know, Wrong Side of Love, I think, and and uh, All Wound Up sound like old school cheap trick. It's more that the guitar sound, more that bass and guitar kind of trading off. My, I think my favorite song probably on the album is, is All We Need Is a Dream, just because it's this huge kind of epic Robin vocal that, you know, I think stands out just as something different. And it's just, uh, you know, but really the last half, this side too, really, I think is, is really where they're at. Okay, that's fair. So so we're kind of split a little bit on this album. I'm, I, I guess I'm more leaning towards the positive and Matt sounds like you're more in the middle and BJ you're more on the it's not the best thing in the world camp, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, so please correct me if I'm not representing it properly. I didn't love Don't Be Cruel so much, but these last four songs really are my favorites on the on this whole CD, what I, you know, of the album, you know, side 2 of the album. And right. back in the day when you would really listen to side 1 and side 2 Side two was really the one that I would play more. So, I mean, really, Wrong Side of Love, and especially, I think, All Wound Up, to me, sound like old-school cheap trick. Right. They're, they're trading off on the on the guitar and the bass. I, I think maybe because, also, these are they're both songs that were written with, with uh, you know, Rick or Robin and, and Tom, Tom, and whereas yeah. some of these outside writing, the earlier stuff on side one are the outside writers. Now they're almost like saying, okay, well, we got our songs that we want on the album. Okay, now you guys write a couple songs and we'll throw them at the end of side two. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, really wrong side of love. I, I like it. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. a uh, return appearance as a song doctor on Wrong Side of Love. Yeah. So that's two of co-writes for him. What do you think of Wrong Side of Love, BJ? I think it's all right. I like Let Go a lot more, mm-hmm. personally. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it's fine. I don't, I don't love it. Well, there you go. So it, it <laughs> just kind of lays there, and sometimes that's all you need in a relationship. Um, but I'm bummed. <laughs> So let's move on to the next track. All we need is a dream. Hello. Is there anyone you don't know how obsessed the world for you? Hello. Is there any place? A thousand hearts, a million miles, a dream. this is the first time that we hear some old school cheap trick on this album in a lot of ways to me this song could have come off of all shook up or one-on-one or even standing on the edge what do you think bj i agree with matt i think all we need is a dream is a great song but as with the rest of the album unfortunate production i think it could have been a lot better if it was produced differently but i love i like the song a lot and i think i could have loved it if it was just recorded differently 
it, I was going to say, it's got that epic opening. Sounds like it could have been something that Queen would have even done. Like, you know, it's it's this huge song, and then it's kind of built around the vocal. And like you said earlier, Robin could do anything, and it's going to sound good. So any song that features such a huge vocal, you know, I, I think it's one of the standout tracks on the album, especially on an album that doesn't necessarily sound like a cheap trick album this song doesn't necessarily sound like a cheap trick song but i i really love it for some reason well it's funny you say it doesn't sound like a cheap trick song because they when rick and i think rick and robin wrote it with greg jafria and they wrote it for house of lords but then rick Rick says in the book that their singer couldn't sing it (laughs) so cheap trick (laughs) decided to do it instead wow well, yeah, see, that makes that makes so much sense because that's it, it. It's exactly. It seems like something that even Robin's doing all the vocals too. There, I don't think you hear anybody else's vocals on the song. It's just he's doing the the main vocal and all the background vocals, and you know, it's just it's very different. So all we need is a dream was written by Nielsen, Xander, and Greg Jafria, and you mentioned the House of Lords, BJ. They also worked on another song for them, did they not? Yeah, there's a song on the first House of Lords album called Slip of the Tongue that, according to the Ken Sharp, Mike Hayes book, was written at the same time as All We Need is a Dream. And like I said, All We Need is a Dream was originally intended, I guess, for House of Lords, so they wound up doing this other song, Slip of the Tongue, instead. Well, let's listen to a little bit of that right now. think of bj it's not great (laughs) (laughs) it's the house of lords it's not cheap trick yeah and if it if it were all that great maybe we'd be doing the house it's not as it's not as good as all we need is a dream that's for sure yeah definitely definitely but uh all we need is a dream is pretty pretty good track so (laughs) speaking of co-writes track nine which would speaking of song doctors (laughs) yeah song doctors the famous diane warren you guys have a favorite Diane Warren song? Favorite? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there was. I, the... I probably do, but I'm, I'd have to look at a list of her yeah. songs. <laughs> well, she der- certainly didn't hurt uh, Aerosmith. Yeah. As far right. as getting a hit, so you know. But uh, she writes uh, our next track along with Mr. Nielsen, "Ghost Town." think of ghost town go bj i like it the song it actually they demoed it all the way back in 1981 and rick wrote it by himself uh he's rick says in the book that diane warren rewrote the verses i I don't so i don't really know what her role was in the song but i think the song already existed as a finished work before diane warren came in and tweaked it you know which i think she did a lot over the course of her career is just take somebody's song and you know song doctorate yeah Do you so yeah i think they recorded it he demoed it you know back around like one-on-one era but it wouldn't really have fit very well on any of those albums really it's a pretty different song for for rick nielsen the right at least 
I don't know. Um, to me, like you mentioned, why, why, why? It, it doesn't seem all that far away from that. Yeah, yeah. Do you have the demo for this? No, I've never heard it. Darn. But according to the book, yeah, <laughs> I know. According to the book, it was demoed in 81. Wow. Matt, what do you think of Ghost Town? I always like the song. I mean, it's it's funny how really some of the bigger songs in the album are all the breakup songs. I mean, between this one, The Flame, and Let's Go, somebody's having a bad time in a relationship. And the, uh, you know, just, it's it's a good one. I think, uh, you know, it's like kind of mellow. You know, I, I don't know that's one you necessarily would go, oh, man, I want to listen to some cheap trick. I'm going to put this one on. But the Got to get into some ghost town. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, and I mean, I, I was kind of like the video of it. The video was kind of interesting. But the, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's good. I, it's like I kind of, you know, not really, you know, strong either way on it. But hmm. I'm surprised it wasn't more of a hit, especially coming after the flame. Yeah. But. Yeah, it definitely seems like the cousin of the flame. It, it doesn't seem like it would be all that. Uh, but nobody seems to know this track, despite but, there being well, a but you know what? Do you, do you feel like this is when they talk about the sound they were getting boxed into? It's like suddenly all the singles were kind of like this one's mellow. The flame is mellow. You know, it's like easy listening with cheap trick. You know, coming at you. I I can see that, but then again. What about, uh, you know, a lot of their singles in the 80s and even voices, you know? Well, I mean, but this is this album in a lot of ways was people who maybe weren't familiar with Cheap Trick discovering them. Mm-hmm. And if you, it's like in the same way, like, you know, uh, and you hate to always use the Kiss references, but like, you know, Beth, a lot of people, oh, this nice soft band called Kiss. You know, if you got Cheap Trick because you liked the flame and then you went back to the early stuff, you'd probably be like, you know, like you know, like you said, little Rick was always a little more scary or a little twisted, and you know it's like You're gonna uh, slap a little Hello Kitty's upside your head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I think I said earlier. That's one of the big things that's missing from this album is that cheap trick personality. That, Absolutely. That which a big part, a huge part of that. The main part probably was Rick Nielsen. Yeah, and there's all the little things that Rick Nielsen would do with his voice and his guitar. Mm-hmm on Cheap Trick records that was just so identifiable and Very that much. most Cheap Trick fans really were had an affection for, you know, that quirkiness and that was a big part right. of the band. Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. Good good call, guys. Uh, well, let's go to track 10. Xander Peterson and Jana Allen, who uh, worked a lot with Hall and Oates. Yeah, she co-wrote "Kiss on My List" and mm-hmm. "Private Eyes," and actually, her sister Sarah Allen was the Sarah of Sarah Smile. Exactly. 
That's and she was she was Tom's about. girlfriend at the time that they wrote this. Really, I did yeah, not know. Yeah, that's from the book. I think I got that. Wow, she also wrote for such artists as Cheap Trick and Peter Wolf. So, and she passed away at the age of thirty-six in 1993 from leukemia. So, yeah. Wow. Mm. So, what do you guys think of the track? I don't love it, <laughs> which I've been saying about a lot of this album, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a pretty good closer for the album I'll give it that but it's not uh, again not an amazing album it's in the middle of the pile you know actually there was a a song called All Wound Up that Cheap Trick did in their live set way back like 75 that was a completely different song that's a pretty hilarious <laughs> I have a live version of it from like 1975 so here's an alternate version of all wound up, completely different song, but we're going to play a little bit of it just because uh, we want to. sides and outtakes for this album through the night which was later available on sex america cheap trick yeah that's the b-side of the flame single i like yep. that song a lot <laughs> that would have <laughs> been in the top half of the album for me if it was on there <laughs> uh-huh. and then there was you want it which was also available on the box set magical mystery tour which we later had on the greatest hits i thought that was a very good version i, I would have loved to had that on this album I think that would have been pretty cool, but then yeah, they and also I actually had, I like you want it. That was on the Say Anything soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. And later and on, the I like that song too. <laughs> now I did not care for another one that was off this, but Money. That's what I want, and I love that song. But it was on the Caddyshack Two soundtrack. So yeah, again, I, I guess that our thinking. call on a lot of soundtrack stuff was further evidenced by what we're seeing here. So you know, I would take like No Mercy in Space and Put Through the Night and You Want It on the record would have made it a lot better album. Yeah. I, I think I would agree. I agree. So everybody make their own version of this album. <laughs> Cheap Trick, in a lot of ways, became whole on this album. Again, feel how you will about it, Tom came back to the band. And that was great. It was good to have Tom back. Definitely. Nothing against Mr. Brandt, who was admirable and did a great job, but there's nothing like the original lineup, and it's just that's just the way it is. There's just a you never forget your first love of a band, and usually it's 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 the original lineup, and that is the one that the other lineups live in the shadow of. So, be that as it may, I guess you guys should mention your shows. Well, obviously, if you're uh, if you know me, you know the Kiss Room. Go to thekissroom.com, and uh, we have all you know. If you're a Cheap Trick fan, hopefully you're also a Kiss fan, and uh, you can join us over there. 
Okay, and BJ, you have a pretty nifty little show, and I don't know if that's the best word to describe it, but it's definitely nifty in my book. Tell us all about it, sir. Yeah, I do a podcast called Rock and or Roll. Love it. Uh, you can you could go to rockandorrollpodcast.blogspot.com, and there's a link to the Facebook page and the iTunes and the email address and everything is on the blog page. So check it out. What do you guys want to do for the next episode? You know, it would be really, since it's the summer and we just talked all about soundtracks, we'll make a big, it's the summer blockbuster and just talk about all the songs that were on soundtracks. I have a funny Up the Creek story. You can play, you know, there's there's an album worth of just soundtrack songs. Right. So, and most of them are great, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So, so, so you know, coming up sometime this summer, the soundtrack album or Cheap Trick at the Movies. Get your popcorn. That's right. And your 3D glasses, because you're going to need them. But, no, I always made that, uh, I, that, that's the name of my soundtrack album, is uh, At the Movies with Cheap Trick. <laughs> so, so look forward to that. Well, thank you guys for listening, and check out our other affiliated podcast, and if you're so inclined. And we hope you enjoyed this fourth episode of Cheap Talk. Take it away. And that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members, past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap tricking. <laughs> Doing a little bit of that radio magic. Hey, everybody. WKIP playing Dolly Parton's biggest tits. Coming right up, right at you. Need some 3D glasses for that one. Anyhow, uh, stop this recording. Stop this recording. It's going to really end. <laughs> Were you the king? Uh-uh.